I'm Lawrence Krauss, and welcome to this Origins podcast exclusive. I say exclusive because today's podcast is with the remarkable writer Cormac McCarthy, a writing legend and certainly one of America's greatest writers. Cormac is notorious for having done very, very few interviews. And I was very honored when Cormac, who is an old friend, agreed to invite us into his house to have a discussion upon the publication of his recent books. At the time, his book, The Passenger, had just appeared. And just this week, the second uh, book associated with that, Stella Morris, appeared on December 6th. And I wanted to use that as a springboard to talk about science. Cormac likes to talk about science. What many people may not realize is, as he said to me numerous times, he's more interested in science than literature. And likes to have discussions of those ideas. And I wanted to use certain discussions within the context of the book to elaborate aspects of science and culture. Cormac is notoriously laconic, and and it's very difficult to get him to not just do an interview, which he almost never does, but to 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 speak uh, at length about 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 these ideas. Uh, and you'll see in the discussion, it's it's more like the kind of dialogue he and I have, where he in, likes to listen to physicists talk about physics, and 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 then uh, comment on that. And and you'll see that I'm doing a lot of talking in this in this discussion, and. Uh, I recognize that in advance, and uh, and I wish uh, uh, there was less of me and more of Cormac. But I think what Cormac says is incredibly insightful and interesting, and gives you a view of the processes that that go on in his mind, which have helped produce the kind of remarkable literature that he's ultimately produced. It's a discussion of science, not literature, and uh, I hope you enjoy it and uh, and find what I find so remarkable that this that this literary icon is also incredibly knowledgeable about math and science and comfortable talking about it and it represents as I say in the podcast the kind of fusion of art and culture which I think is so important in which the Origins podcast and the Origins Project Foundation is built to uh, demonstrate and elucidate so enjoy this discussion with Cormac McCarthy one of the unique experiences. He's 90 years old, almost 89, and uh, and it was late afternoon, and, it, and and I'm sure he was tired. And I particularly appreciated him taking the time out to be to to have that discussion. And you'll also see, for those who can watch it, the challenges of recording a podcast in a room uh, uh, with windows and no blinds in a very sunny day. Uh, so all of that taken in context, I hope you'll you'll. Uh, Watch the the version without advertisements by uh, getting a paid subscription to the Critical Mass Substack site. Those subscriptions go to supporting the Origins Project Foundation, which runs the podcast and all of our other activities. And uh, if you can't do that, you'll watch it, I hope, on, on our YouTube channel or listen to it on any place where you can listen to podcasts and uh, enjoy the rare occasion to listen to a few words from Cormac McCarthy. Thanks. Cormac, thanks so much 
for spending time with me, allowing us to be here and, and welcoming us into your home so we can have a chat about the world and science. And, and it's, a, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for, 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 for doing this. Here. Well, thanks for coming. It, is, it means more to me than you may know to spend time together again. And we're here to talk about science. I don't know if a lot of people know, but I do, because we spent time together, how interested you are in science. I think you once told me that that's what you like to read the most was science. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm a big fan. I mean, I think it may be clearer from, for the first time in your last book where you actually talk about science, and then maybe the first book where you talked about science, I'm not sure. But now this is an origins podcast, and I want to find out, I never asked you, where did your interest in science begin? What, what were, your, were your parents... Were they scientific at all? No, or? no. Where did that interest in science begin? In free science, it's interesting. Yeah, but how did you get exposed to it? As, as a kid or, or...? Well, no, it's around. I mean, I, I, how would anybody not be interested well, in science? Well, I agree. My feeling is once you know that it's out there, how can you not be interested? But you have to know what's out there. Did you read books by scientists when you were a kid? Or did you no, hear it on TV? Not or? when I was a kid, no. So it must have stumbled upon it somehow. <laughs> stumbled upon it somehow. That, that's probably the best answer. I stumbled upon it somehow. Okay. Yeah. And then, is, is physics the part of science that you find most interesting, by yeah. the way? Yeah. yeah. I agree. It's the most interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and once you stumbled upon it, did you make an effort then to, to read books by scientists? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and uh, did you read all the standards like Gamow, George Gamow, and people like that yeah. when you were younger? yeah. And Feynman. And Feynman. Yeah, Feynman his, was one, turned me on. I mean, his character of physical law, I think, was the book that yeah. really convinced me. You know what it convinced me of was that science was still alive. It wasn't all done by sort of dead white men 200 years ago, that there was still a lot to learn. Well, that's interesting because Feynman said that we live in a period where we're going to learn all about science, and after, after we're dead, there'd be nothing else to know. And I think that's... Not exactly right. Yeah, and in fact, I think you use that quote in the new book when you talk about Feynman. Uh, you specifically relate that. And it was very un-Feynman-esque to say that because Feynman used to say that he didn't think there'd be ultimately a theory of everything. He thought it'd be like an onion. And each time we, you know, we peel back more. Which so, seems like the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And so given that he said that, you'd think he'd always think there'd be something more to discover. Uh, well, most of us do think. Now, we first met when I was visiting the Santa Fe Institute, yeah. and, and where you spent a lot of time. How did that interaction... I mean, you didn't move to Santa Fe for the Institute, I'm assuming. Yes, I did. You did? Yeah. And it was because of that that you wanted to be here so you could spend time there? I moved to Santa Fe so I could be near the Institute. And it was because of your interest in science. I didn't realize that. Okay. Oh, yeah, sure. And you regularly... And that's a good place to meet people and talk about science. And well, yeah, excellent. And you can see it from the new book, but, you know, one of the people who was instrumental in starting the Santa Fe Institute was Murray Gallman, who... And, yeah. and is that how you knew about the Institute? Was it because of Murray, or, or...? Yeah, he invited me to come. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. And he was uh, an amazing scientist who also knew everything about everything else. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, yeah, he, he would, no matter what it was, he would explain to you why you were wrong. <laughs> he would he would tell you why you were mispronouncing your own name. Exactly. He always did that. First time I met him, he told me why I was mispronouncing my own name. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And it's for me, it was a joy in reading the new book. It, because for the first time, physics 
kind of makes an impact in there. It was kind of fun for me to read indirectly about Murray and Feynman and, and George Feig, who I guess you also knew. Yeah, uh, no, George is a very good friend of mine. We yeah. talk on the phone all the time. Yeah, all the time. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But, you know, one of the things that, I, that hit me that you write about it was with your first talk about math. In fact, I guess the heroine of this book is, is, is more of a mathematician than a physicist. Well, the, the book that's coming after this book is a monologue by a lady mathematician. By a lady mathematician, yeah. okay. Did you, did you study math at all when you were younger or no? Did, did... No, when I was younger, but later on, yeah. So, so you, you actually liked the mathematics? The... Oh, yeah. And this connection between math and physics, I did a degree in math and one in physics. And the yeah. connection, of course, is incredibly important. Yeah. But people often fall on one side or another. Does the math attract you more than physics? Or, or I don't know. George, George and I talked about that one time, and I said I thought, I thought math was richer and there was more depth to it. He, he disagreed. He said, no, there's, there's a lot more to physics than there is to math. George White, by the way, had the same experience. He was... He did math and then he did physics. And, yeah. you know, for me, though, what happened... And I don't want this to be on me, but I want to preface your character. I did a degree in math and physics. And I was always good in math, obviously. In fact, I started doing mathematical physics. That was the kind of physics I yeah. did. But what I realized for me was that with physics, I could see where I was going. And with math, I could do it. But I didn't know where I was going. So one of the characters, the protagonist of your book, left ma- math for physics. He changed his major from math to physics. Yeah. And, and it says... The reason he gave in his letter were the best that he could come up with, but they weren't the reason. The reason was that in talking to his grandmother, in talking to her on those warm nights at his grandmother's kitchen no, table... He didn't talk to his grandmother. Well, he talked at his grandmother. At, at, at his grandmother. Okay, thank you. And um, at his grandmother's kitchen table, he had seen briefly into the deep part of numbers and knew that the world would be forever closed to him. Yeah, because of his sister who did see... Yeah, so I, that really resonated with me because it was like, yeah, you could do it, but somehow the deep heart of numbers, yeah. somehow the deep, the, the wealth and depth of mathematics you talk about was something that I couldn't see ahead. I could, I could accept it after learning it, but, but I couldn't see ahead into it. you can't quite get it. Yeah, whereas the physics, I knew where I was going to go. Yeah. And the math, I could take it in, but I didn't know there's something missing to me. And it, yeah. was, it, was, and it was a fascinating experience. That word, the way you described it, Totally captured my own experience, ah, and so. Okay, and, and do you, do you sense that you can't that you're limited your own personal limitations and in, in in under in getting into the numbers or not? Well, I don't know. Everybody, everybody's limited. Yeah, I we mean, all. No matter somewhere. how good you are at math or how deeply you pursue it, there's always more there. Yeah, there's always a lot more there. Yeah. In fact, uh, the difference between math and physics there's so many differences, but the math is all possible worlds. Whereas physics is, at least the physics of our world is one of them. Yeah, math phys- is, is physics is a finite business. And math, we don't know. Math appears to go on forever. We don't know if it does or not. Yeah, you know, and, and if, I forget his name now. Boy, I've read one of my books. And, um, uh, the, when, the guy who invented the word gauge theory was a mathematical physicist. And he said when he, he, said when he was forced to choose between the true and the beautiful, he'd always choose the beautiful. Yeah, and I think that's the difference between a mathematician and a physicist. People write about the elegant universe, but elegance is nice in physics, but it may not. It, the real world may not follow that elegance, and whether you like it or not, you have to follow the real world. Well, it could be misleading. A lot of, quite a few famous 
physicists pursued it because of its beauty. But oh, that yeah. can lead you astray. Exactly, it can lead you astray. And, yeah. and, and you have to realize sometimes, I mean, most of us, it's like our children, we think they're beautiful even if they aren't. But when, you, when you're a theoretical physicist, as I am, you can come up with a theory and it looks beautiful to you. And the hardest part almost of being a scientist is when you have something that looks so beautiful that you figure it must be re- true, and then you discover that nature decided not to adopt that particular... No, there, there, are some, there are some mathematical and physical theories that are absolutely gorgeous and wrong. Exactly, and wrong. And again, I'm jumping all around here because I was going to do this later, but because Murray, uh, we, both of us knew him, and he later on said no, but it was clear when, when he developed the concept of quarks for him, it was a mathematical, it was just a mathematical trick in some ways, right? I mean, he was thinking of it as yeah. a mathematical tool, but the real world really wasn't like that. That's true, and, that, and, and I can show it to you in his paper, but he claimed, he claimed that that wasn't so, that uh, he knew all the time that it was real. But I can show you the paper where he says the exact opposite. Yeah, no, that's a sense, and I, somehow I knew that, and yeah, Murray later on claimed various things, but the strangest thing, if you're a theoretical physicist, and the hardest thing to really accept is when you come up with some uh, mathematical idea on a piece of paper, the, the realization that nature actually behaves that way is terrifying. Well, yeah, when you realize that nature thinks the same way you do, and you've got to stop and think, how is that possible? Exactly. How could it be? And so, and, and so I can see how when you write something down and say, okay, this is my trick, and you know, maybe, it, maybe it touches nature a little bit, but it actually describes it. And there's this history, a long history of, you know, even the concept of atoms for a long time was just a mathematical trick. No one believed atoms were real. Yeah. But it was a nice way to, to label and categorize matter. Well, George told me that he always... He always understood that quarks were genuine physical yeah. entities. Zweig always thought they were genuine, and, and, and Gelman thought that they were a Yes, exactly. Another example, which actually you allude to in the book, too, which is a famous example of, of uh, Paul Dirac, probably one of, next to Einstein, one of the greatest theoretical physicists of the 20th century. He was, as he said, cowardly. I think his was the first because it was, the first example in modern physics of a, of a particle that was developed, that was proposed purely for mathematical reasons, the, the positron, the anti, antimatter. Yeah. And so he developed this theory, and, and, and when he saw these particles had to exist, he figured, well, it must be the proton. It, 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 he, it, it can't be a new particle. You know, he, he thought somehow the proton had to be and it had a very different mass from the electron, but he thought maybe there are reasons it has a different mass. Yeah. And later on, when the positron was discovered, which was predicted by his theory, yeah. um, you know, he said the theory was smarter than he was, that he was a car, because it must have been incredibly daunting. It, it never had happened before that any theory predicted a new particle in nature that had never been discovered. And, yeah. and he was ju- it was just too terrifying. Yeah. And, and so this connection between mathematics and physics is is fascinating and awe-inspiring. And, and, you know, you probably know the... I don't know if you ever read the um, essay written by Eugene Wigner. Did you ever read it on the... Oh, yes, on the famous unex- essay. The famous essay on yeah. the, unexpected, the unexpected sort of why... It's not clear why mathematics should do such a good job of describing the world. Yeah. And, you know, I like to think now 
that we have a better understanding of that than we did when Wigner wrote that. Uh, inevitably, we must, yeah. And, and the reason being that now we tend to think we understand physics almost purely in terms of symmetries. Mathematical symmetries determine the dynamics. The, 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 as I like to say, the playing field determines the rules of the game. Yeah. If, you know, if baseball fields were five miles long instead of 90 feet or whatever, it would be a very different game. game. Yeah. And, and so if we think that the symmetries of nature are what determine how the world works, then it's kind of easier to understand why mathematics does a, such a good job. People often ask me, and I don't have an answer, whether we discover the mathematics or whether the mathematics is always there in some sense. It's, it's, it's an interesting question. It is an interesting question, and mathematics gives the illusion of existing in the world. In other words, would mathematics be here if we weren't? Yeah, that's the, that's uh, the question. And, and, and I think the answer is no, it would not. It's, and, a, it's a human invention in spite of the illusion of others. It's, you, I agree with you. It's a human invention, but it's really surprising that it's a human invention that happens to be the right language to describe nature. Yeah, well, we have lots of languages. But, you know, but there's a difference between math and other languages. Math is a language, but it's a language plus a set of rules, a set of connections. You know, Feynman, yeah. in the character of physical law, the book that probably influenced both of us, yeah. to, he pointed that out in the, I think, very first chapter. Take gravity. You can, you can have two different ways of describing gravity. Gravity is a force that varies as one over r squared and points between the two objects. Or you can say gravity causes planets to go around in ellipses that traverse equal areas and equal times. Linguistically, those are two completely different things that have nothing to do with one another. But yeah. math shows that they're exactly the same thing. Yeah, that's true. But whether, we're, whether the world is mathematics or whether mathematics is, just happens to be a the best language to describe the world is a debate. And I, I guess we agree. I think it's, it just happens to be the best language. I don't think the world is mathematics. No. Um, I have to also say one of my favorite lines, and I guess you just came up with this for the book, when talking about math, after the bath comes the aftermath. <laughs> I love that line. Did that, had you heard that line before or just wrote it? No, I just, it's just you know, it was there. It's a great, it's probably one of the greatest descriptions of math. Anyway, as you started to get interested in physics, um, you say it was Feynman. Was it Feynman, who, reading Feynman primarily, who got you in? What about Einstein? Did you read his books? Uh, uh, I did. I didn't find them all that interesting. Other people were more interesting. I got fascinated by Feynman, and I got to know him a little bit. Did you ever get to talk to Feynman at all? No, I never did. Yeah, you would have... Yeah. Both enjoyed each other. I'll tell yeah, you that. I would have liked to. Yeah, he was. He, he, him and Gaman were complementary in so many ways. But your interest in science goes way beyond physics because I remember one. I said to you one of the one of the favorite hours I've ever done on radio was when you came to uh, to to Phoenix when when Werner Herzog's movie came out, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Yeah, and and you and Werner came together and and and. For the film, and you know, we talked about it afterwards. But we did an hour of radio, where you and Werner were talking about early modern humans, with yeah, a kind of authority yeah. that yeah. I was so excited about. Because on radio, f- for me and for you, science is just an integral part of being human. Yeah. Most people think of it as something separate, something from column B. But the fact that you 
both of you are cultural icons in different ways, you and Werner. And for people to see that the, you, not just an interest in science, but an expertise that you were able to converse with, I thought was incredibly important for people to see that they could do something else and still not be, and still not be ashamed of or afraid of actually understanding science in a detailed way. And I'm, so I'm wondering where did that interest in early modern humans come from, or did, was it just because it's a fascinating subject? I think just because it's a fascinating subject. When it comes to early modern humans, we've talked a little bit. I remember on the phone having a long conversation with you about evolution. Yeah. And um, there's a bunch of times in the new book, I have to say, where you alluded to evolution in a way that's interesting and may represent our differences in the context of evolution and and the notion of God. And I think one of the characters is asked whether they believe in God. And, and, and someone says, and then he says, I don't know who God is or what he is, but I don't believe all this stuff got here by itself, including me. Maybe everything evolves just like they say it does. But if you sound it to its source, you have to come ultimately to an intention. And I know we've had that discussion. And let me back up either. That's not me talking. I know. I That's know. It's a, a character, character in the book talking. I wanted to ask you. I don't. I know. And I, I never assume that the character is you, but I wanted to ask you, to what extent you totally disagree with that statement. I, I have to plead ignorance. Okay. I'm pretty much a materialist. Oh, I'm, you are. Okay. Yeah. And and I think one of the important things that one of the big misconceptions that people have about evolution and Richard Dawkins talks about this a lot, rightly so, is the sense that evolution is directed. Is that somehow it always has a direction for things to get better. There's no direction to evolution. And, no. And, and, and people you know, think that, oh yes, things evolve to always get better, but it, they just evolve in the circumstances and there's no foresight. There's no... We're the, we have foresight, but, but, but evolution doesn't. It just happens to be the way it is. And sometimes maladaptions occur that get in the way. In fact, it's... They do, in, yeah. In, in fact, one of the things you talk about in the book, which is, which is something... I remember Richard had said on stage with me, uh, I think it was even in Unbelievers, I'm not sure, was it what surprised him is that humans evolved to understand quantum mechanics. And, I, and in the book you talk about somewhere, and I, I could find the quote there, that it's remarkable and unexpected... That, that, you know, evolution produces things that are not intentional. And well, supposedly evolution is, we evolve so as to understand things which will help us to uh, survive better. But we understand all kinds of things that have nothing to do with our survival. Darwin was always puzzled by that. What was that? Darwin. Yeah, yeah. He said, why do we understand this shit? It's not going to do us any good. Yeah, no, exactly. In fact, some people would say... It might be counter, it might be a maladaptation. Sometimes it is. Yeah, and it may be in the context of us being able to destroy ourselves, ultimately a maladaptation. Well, hard to imagine that we're going to still be here 100,000 years from now. Oh, I agree. 100,000 years. What what about 100 years from now? What do you think? We have every opportunity of (laughs) destroying ourselves. We certainly do, And, and in fact... Because the, one of the characters in the book is involved in ultimately the Manhattan Project with Oppenheimer and, and others, there are some really remarkable pages about the experience of uh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. And, and one of the things I, I wondered was, is this true? I didn't know it. 
You said there were people who escaped from Hiroshima and rushed to Nagasaki to see their loved ones were safe, arriving just in time to be incinerated. Apparently there were. I don't know if there's any proof that it's so, but but it really could be. Yeah, it's an amazing thought. It never occurred to me until then. And your descriptions of what the character's father saw well, those, again, imaginings in your mind, or are they based on readings of what it was no, really that's, like? No, that's what the people reported. There's a sentence in here that I can't resist asking you about. Talking about, I think, the, visit, the first vision of the explosion before the impact hits. Yeah. And you said something like, In that mycotal phantom, blooming in the dawn like an evil lotus, and in the melting of solids not heretofore known to do so, stood a truth that would silence poetry a thousand years. I, I, I love that sentence. I was going to ask you about it. It's just a sentence. It's just a sentence. The reason I, I guess I'm asking is that, is that Oppenheimer, who was a, also a polymath, and as you know, he quoted that same line from the, um, whatever it's, Bhagavad Gita or whatever yeah, it's called, yeah, yeah. right after the bomb went off. He recited poetry right after the first explosion, when he first saw it. I think he, I think he had uh, tucked it up his sleeve so as to be ready. Yeah, of course, I'm sure he was. Re- like <laughs> Feynman, I'm sure he was a showman. Yeah, and, very and, much so. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know him, but I, it could be hard to imagine he wasn't a showman. But silencing poetry for a thousand years, the question I guess I was going to ask you was, I think you t- much to- once told me that for you, science is much more interesting li- than literature. Yeah. Do you think, in that sense, the results of science silence poetry for a thousand years? Namely, if the, if we think of human, of the human experience and what what, I mean, there'll be no legacy because we'll be all gone. But but if we think of the, of of, of humans' contribution to the, the, the of culture, that science ultimately outshines literature. Well, you have to go back to Spengler, and you have to. In spite, of, in spite of Spangler being somewhat full of shit, he's an interesting guy, and he is. Somebody said you can't really write him off mm-hmm. as a uh, as a f- fraud because he's too smart. But uh, Spangler understood that science certainly does, and would for some, probably forever. We int- both you and I intimately recognize that there's no separation, and as a scientist, I spend most of my life. And much of what this podcast is about, and like trying to show that science is part of our culture, and and get people as excited as you say, how could people not be excited? And but because people don't realize that what fascinates them really is science; they think it's something else. But yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Shakespeare. Don't get me wrong, but but I it's hard to think that it competes ultimately with the edifice of say the standard model of particle physics. What do you think? Well, I think that. Uh... I think Spengler's right. We're going to have science after everything else is gone. Interesting. After everything else is gone. Expand on that a little bit for me. Well, uh, poetry. I mean, does people, do people seriously believe we still have poetry? Oh, interesting question. I, you know, it's, I, that's an interesting question. I, I can't answer it. I've, I'm a Philistine, I have to admit. And, and I, I, while I love to read, poetry is something I never could fully appreciate. I, I once got in trouble at Harvard for saying to a, a very eminent professor who, of sort of poetry, I was trying to provoke her, I must admit, but I said, 
if poets really want to say something, why don't they just write it down? I think it's a fair question. Yeah, I think it, you know, I've always assumed it's my own, my, my own problem, that there's something I'm missing that I... That I, I, I don't think so. Really? Okay, interesting. Now, besides evolution, which, which and, and early modern humans, which, 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 as I say, I've learned a lot about and we've had fun talking about, um, well, I mean, do, 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 you actually, do you think that maybe our intellects are, are a maladaptation? I mean, I can see why the ability to plan has an evolutionary value, right? I mean, you know, the ability to foresee things and make plans in the future can be incredibly important, for, for, especially yeah. for humans living in the savanna when, where food may be scarce and that sort of thing. Okay. But, uh, but do you think that, that having had that evolutionary purpose, that, that the beauty that it's led to, that's led to art, literature, science, was a maladaptation ultimately or just a... I don't know. We don't know how long that stuff's going to be around. Maybe yeah. not long. Yeah. Well, I think it'll be... But I, we both agree it'll be a lot around longer than maybe... than poetry maybe. Um, there's what is essentially a chapter of the book which I really got a kick of, which is really reminding me of book, my book The Greatest Story Ever Told so far. You give a great description of the, of the development of the standard model of particle physics. And... Um, the, the, the historical examples of physics and the development of the standard model are, are bang on. And there's some aspects that I wanted to actually talk to you about that I think um, I may have a slightly different perspective on than you. So we talked about quarks, and I, I think I, I, I wanted to let you know that Dirac was the first person to come up. His example was the first time a particle had been invented. Now we do it all the time. Yeah. Neutrinos yeah. and other things were later on and developed. We got a tradition of that, but it was a, it was a totally new thing in science for for mathematics to propose something, a new particle existed, and it must have been terrifying. Yeah. But, but before them, someone who proposed something that existed that no one could really understand was Boltzmann. And, yeah. And he eventually yeah. killed himself because people yeah. didn't understand that. People say Boltzmann committed suicide because he was so ill-treated by the physics community. But the truth is, Boltzmann killed himself because he was suicidal. Yeah, well, I guess that's the truth. That's a true statement. No, yeah, that's right. But, but, let me take beyond that. In the book, you mention Ehrenfest and someone, and they characterized Ehrenfest no Boltzmann, but Ehrenfest was Boltzmann's student. Did you know that? He also committed suicide. Exactly. He also committed suicide and killed his son. Do you know this story? From it's a guy from Caltech. David Goodstein wrote one of my favorite physics texts. It, it's not in my own area. It's on condensed matter physics. I think it's called States of Matter. I can't remember. But the introduction is wonderful. It's, it's all about statistical mechanics, which Boltzmann created as a field. And it says, Boltzmann created this field, and, and you know, he committed suicide. Then his work was taken up by Ehrenfest, who worked on this, <laughs> and he committed suicide. And then it says, now it's our turn to study mechanics. <laughs> it's a great introduction. It's pretty funny. Yeah. But now I want to get to quantum mechanics, because you, you talk about it in an interesting way. You know, because quantum mechanics has spawned all of this philosophy that drives me nuts. This I philosophy know, of quantum mechanics. It's pretty bad. In fact, you say, I love the way you say Kant's view of quantum mechanics, because, of course, Kant was a lot before quantum mechanics. We say his view is a quote is, that which is not adapted to our powers of cognition, which is, which is really true. That's a quote from Kant. Is it? But not about quantum mechanics. No, well, <laughs> <laughs> about quantum mechanics to come. Yeah, quantum mechanics kind of anticipated it. You know that Feynman 
one of the things he said about, you know, he was one of the first people to talk about quantum computers, right? Yeah. In later in his life. Yeah. And he said one of the reasons was he figured if a, qu- a quantum computer, which bases its processing on pure quantum processes, might have a better intuitive understanding of quantum mechanics than he did and might therefore be able to explain it to him. Did you know he said that? No, but that sounds right. Yeah, it sounds right. I mean, I think the point is we, we're cl- classical beings and we, we can't intuit quantum mechanics. And it has spawned, we talked about this at lunch, but I want to talk about it again, this whole notion, this misplaced notion, which I mentioned to you, my, my old colleague Sidney Coleman described beautifully, it, that this whole field of the interpretation of quantum mechanics has grown up, which is pure, in my mind, pure waste of words. Because, okay. because the world is not class, classical. Interpreting the quantum world in terms of classical world is ridiculous. It's because going the, the you're going the wrong says, way. It's going the wrong way. As, yeah. as Sidney said, you should talk about the interpretation of classical mechanics. Because right. the world is quantum mechanical. And the fact that when you talk about quantum mechanics, it's, like it's non-local or all these things, it's only because you're, you're enforcing, or the many worlds interpretation, it's only because you're forcing a classical interpretation on something which isn't classical. That's exactly right. And then these people I'm write books about it. I'm happy to hear you say it. so. <laughs> yeah, and then these per- people write books about it. I love the fact um, that you say if, there, the, if there's anything wrong with the Cop- Copenhagen, it's that Bohr had read a lot of bad philosophy. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think he established that notion, you know, the whole notion of complementarity and all the rest, which is, you know, sounds, and it's built up this whole mythology. There's more crackpot science and bad science been built up around quantum mechanics than any other area of physics. Oh, without question. And people abuse it, of course, and make money off it, like the secret and all of this nonsense. Because yeah. people try and impose. But as I say, philosophers, I mean, there are philosophers of quantum mechanics, and I'm sure they're doing good work. Mm. But what, what, what they, <laughs> maybe, okay, you're not so sure. Yeah. But, what I'm, but, but my point is, and they get offended when I say physicists, it doesn't matter to physicists. They don't, even, they don't read it. No, of course not. And, and, and that's a true statement, whether or not it means we're Philistines or not. But you describe in here something which I wonder whether you learned from, from Murray about David uh, Bohm, who, who won the, also won the Nobel Prize for, for, for describing the probabilistic interpretation of quantum mechanics, ultimately. And you say um, David went to Einstein's office one day to explain to him uh, to Einstein, why Einstein's objections to quantum mm. mechanics were Murray wrong. said when he came out, he lost his faith. Yeah, he lost his faith. Is that true? And you want to explain that to me? I was fascinated. Is that a true story that you heard? Of course, everything I tell is true. Well, I don't except make, for the things that aren't. I don't aren't. make things up. <laughs> except for the things that you do. Oh, no. <laughs> well, what did he mean by What do you mean he lost faith? He lost his faith in what? In quantum mechanics? Well, yeah, because Einstein didn't believe in it. Yeah, so Einstein convinced him? He went in there and spent an hour and a half talking to Einstein. When he came out, he'd just written a fat, fat book about quantum mechanics. When he came out, he didn't believe in it either. Yeah, and then you say he spent the rest of his life trying to find a classical description that fit the theory, which, of course, a lot of people have have been misplaced. And you talk about hidden variables, the idea that there's something we can't see, that quantum mechanics is incomplete. It's weird, but it's only because we can't see it all. And you point out something I hadn't thought about. You say you can visualize hidden variables. That is, you can visualize how they might work, sort of. You can draw a picture, but they don't work. But the thing is, you can't visualize quantum mechanics. So maybe the attraction to hidden variables is just the fact you can visualize them? You think? Well, that's part of it, I think, sure. And one of the nice things about the Nobel Prize this last year is that it went for 
there are a number of experiments that you could show disprove the possibility of there being any any classical description of quantum mechanical phenomena. And uh, oh, okay, I haven't followed it. Yeah, yeah, this and it was a bunch of. I mean, there were experiments that go way back that go back to this thing called Bell's inequality, which you may have heard of. I know, I know, I'm very familiar with Bell's inequality. But you know what? There's a much better inequality. And, and the person I mentioned, Sidney Coleman, in this lecture called Quantum Mechanics in Your Face, describes it. Yeah. It's a much better inequality that's much more dramatic, where you can describe these experiments, where if the world is classical, these experimenters will measure numbers, and their product will always be plus one. And, okay. and in quantum mechanics, the product will always be minus one. It's not as if there's a, just a slight difference between the two. It's, it's as dramatic as you can be, and yeah. the experiments show plus one. I mean, minus one. I mean, minus they, show, one yeah. they show quantum mechanics. And, and it tells you that, that, you know, give up classical. No matter what you do. Yeah, the world isn't classical. Just get over it. Yeah. And stop worrying about it. And just, as, as they always say, don't worry about it. Just calculate. Yeah, shut up and figure shut, it. Shut up and calculate, which is what my, my, my thesis supervisor, my first thesis supervisor, I eventually left him. But he used to tell me, I was thinking all the time. He said, don't think, just work. <laughs> yeah, but there, I can. In retrospect, I give him credit because if you're a graduate student, there's a temptation to want to know everything before you do anything, <laughs> and it really gets yeah, in the way. Okay. And maybe it's true for writers too. You realize you just have to find something and go ahead and do it. I want to move on. And by the way, I'm I keep moving towards you because the sun is in my eyes. Yes, so, so don't be intimidated. It doesn't don't mean anything by it. But um, in the book, you talk, you really talk about the development of the standard model, and as I say, in a beautiful and wonderfully lucid and correct way. And one of the things you, your character says, or one of the characters says about it, is that they didn't believe, which I think is the father. He said, following on the fact that Murray didn't, you know, didn't think of quarks as real, um, he, he thought the Higgs paper was too elegant. Oh, too elegant to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting that he had that reaction because my reaction to the Higgs is it was too elegant to be right. It just seemed like such a simple way okay. for nature to solve this complicated problem that I was sure while the mechanism worked that the Higgs itself as a particle was just... It's wrong. It had to be wrong. There must be, yeah. Nature must be doing something a little more fancy than that. I was shocked that the Higgs... That the simplest possible way to describe the symmetry breaking that is so important that makes the world we live in the world we live in was due to the Higgs. And, yeah. and, and I was convinced it was wrong. Well, nature can take any path it chooses. Yeah, no, I, and, and I love... I mean, I love being wrong. I, uh, but I remember I, when, I w- when I was younger, I was convinced that, in fact, the mechanism was obviously right. I mean, the mechanism that Steve Weinberg developed and was first to, to connect the mathematical connection that Shelley Glashow and Salam showed was obviously right. Yeah. And so the, the, the mechanism that was described by this particle in nature called the Higgs must be right. But I thought the part, there must be some, something else more of a f- fancy in the physics that would produce that mechanism. And I even worked on it for a while to, wow. to produce a theory without a Higgs. And, I, and, 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 and I, it's interesting that, that when you say too elegant to be wrong, because that, as we pointed out, is a danger. Physicists often yeah. Are, yeah. Are, are deluded by thinking something is too elegant. I, I, I mean, I have had debates with my, my, my friends, he's a friend, but with Brian Greene, who wrote a book called The Elegant Universe, I think. And 
elegance doesn't, in some sense, while beauty, mathematical beauty drives some theoretical physics, physicists, elegance doesn't matter. Elegance doesn't matter at all. It's yeah. what works that matters. That's true. Uh, a lot of, I don't know, the, the Chandrasekhar, the yes, said that uh, given a choice between picking something for its rigorousness or for its beauty, he'd go with beauty. Well, that's a dumb thing to say. You go with beauty. You don't go with either one. You go with the one that's right. The one that's right, and the, in nature, that's the one that nature adopts. And that's, that's right. the difference between, as I said earlier, between a. Uh, a, a physicist and a mathematician. I think the mathematician has the luxury of going for the beauty, but the physicist ha- has to go with what nature does, yeah. whether you like it or not. Yeah. And as a physicist who then watched a generation get in... Well, let's talk about string theory, because you mentioned string theory here. That string theory, I think you, you say in the book, which is really true, it sort of just became has become mathematics. But there was a generation of young physicists probably because of a big gap between experimental results that drove particle physics between the 1970s and maybe the discovery of the Higgs 50 years later, were driven by elegance to thinking that what mattered in physics and what should be important for career developments was developing elegant and complex mathematics, that that was what should be the thing that drives success in physics. Whereas, of course, a generation that had lived with the experimental discoveries of particle physics knew that what really should drive things is whether it works or not. That's right. Do, did you talk to, to, to Murray about that issue? I don't know. We talked about everything, so I'm sure we did. But, you know, I was surprised that he was, he was an early proponent, in fact, had, had actually made sure that, that Green, who, who was one of the developers of string theory, had a position at Caltech for years, of, actually a, a soft money position, before the string revolution happened, and he became a full professor. Um, but Murray had been the one that made sure that he was still, still kept there because he thought it was, it was uh, you know, he, he, Murray felt it was, the ne- it was the next step beyond gauge theories of understanding nature. Yeah, until it... Until it we didn't. saw what it actually was. Yeah, well, yeah, well, we don't know what it actually is. I think that's the problem. That's the same thing. And, and you, yeah, you talk about that. It's remarkable, sociologically... For always been remarkable for me. String theory initially required 26 dimensions, and then it went down to 11 dimensions and maybe 10 dimensions. And we'll talk about dimensions more in your character talks. It gives a great quote that I love about dimensions. That physicists, because, as you point out, one of the things that comes out of string theory right away, which is what suddenly caused the community to jump on it, is that what could be the possible quanta of gravity, the graviton, a zero-mass spin-two particle automatically comes out of the theory. Yeah. And therefore... It's the first a, thing you see. Yeah, it's the first thing you see. And in a world where quantum mechanics and gravity don't seem to work, a theory that automatically gives you what could be the quantum gravity is what suggests it's a, a theory of quantum gravity. But what is amazing, and I don't know if this surprised you, but it surprised me, is that that realization alone was enough to cause a large fraction of the physics community to say, okay, yeah, all these extra dimensions exist that we can't measure. Uh, did that surprise you? Um, I know more than a lot of things in physics surprise you. I mean, physics is full of surprises. Without, I mean, it, it, to me, you know, I mean, it, it's a huge leap to require 
not just one extra dimension, but maybe seven or initially, you know, yeah, that's true. 22. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then say, not only that they're, they're there, but we can't see them. And, and we have to invent reasons why we can't see them. You remember what Feynman said about string theory. Feynman didn't like string theory. And he said it didn't predict anything. It had to just apologize. It had to explain, you know, apologize for why, why you couldn't see any of the aspects of, of, of the fundamental theory. Well, some people would leave the room if you mentioned string theory. Yeah, you mentioned that Shelley Glashow would leave the room. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he moderated his views at one point. But, but, yeah. but, you know, he once said to me, as I told you, he was, I, I was a student, he was influential and later became a friend, had a profound impact on me as a, as a physicist, given what we talked about. I, was a mathem- I did mathematical physics early on, and I was struggling. And I met Shelley, and what he told me was there's formalism, and there's physics, and you have to know the difference. Mm, okay, well, that's well said. It is well said. It had a profound impact because yeah. one of the things that Shelley, one of the things that made Shelley great, besides his incredible creativity and also joviality, was that he kept in incredible touch with experiment. He, yeah, I guess that's true. And and for him, that was incredibly important. He was able to sort of see experiments and then be the first one to propose an underlying model that it may explain those experimental anomalies. And one of the reasons was not just because he was incredibly creative, but because he kept his ear to the ground. He kept, he knew what were important experiments in some way before anyone else. It's really kind uh, of... Okay. And, and, and so for him, string theory, that was why string theory was such an anathema. is because it had no experimental grounding, nor did it make, as far as he could see, any experimental predictions. Yeah, it just seemed right. But we talked about lunch. Things, you know, if your baby always looks beautiful to you, whether they're beautiful or not, and and you have to guard against the easiest person to fool is yourself, as Feynman said. You have to guard yeah. against something that looks so beautiful; it must be right. Yeah, exactly. One of the things you talk about, but you really would have to be an aficionado to understand it. And I remember it's because I've talked to Mary about this: is that many of the ideas of the standard model were anticipated by Stuckelberg. And, and I first learned from, I didn't know about him, but Murray... Nobody knows about Stuckelberg. Poor Stuckelberg. And Murray got man. Yeah. Whenever, and he was the one who would always say, oh yeah, that was, you know, these, that was already done by Stuckelberg. You should read Stuckelberg. That's right. That's Is that, right. Was Murray the first one who, who sort of illuminated, let you know about that? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, no, I just came across him somewhere. And he sounded really interesting. And guess what? He was. He was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, he really was interesting. And it happens ultimately. And, you know, it, it, uh, as you say in the book, and I think it's true that a lot of these things get credited to other people. Yeah. And ultimately that, you know, it's not the end of the world because really what matters is who had the biggest influence on the way we think about the world. And sometimes it's not the person who first had the right the uh, idea. That's that's well said, yeah. And, and you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, I once I, I developed a program in physics entrepreneurship, and I, there I learned the difference between good ideas and successful products. It's, a lot of people have good ideas, but the people who become the the well known the rich are the ones who actually know how to get them into the real world. And I think somehow, and and for better or worse, the Nobel Prize it's arbitrary because it's a prize, but it's really for the people who who have the impact on the world and change the way the world thinks. 
And Stuckelberg yeah. may have had the ideas, but it was others who sort of changed the way the community thinks. Yeah. When it comes to extra dimensions, you you have a a great quote in the book, which which I'll read. Um, it says, "You scribbled somewhere in the margins that when you lose a dimension, you've given up all claims to reality, save for the mathematical." Because again, one of the important things about string theory now, as it morphed, is that the notion of dimensions becomes kind of arbitrary. One person's four-dimensional world or five-dimensional world can be another person's four-dimensional world because of this thing called holography and everything yeah. else. I wonder if we could parse that statement, if that's, again, the character or your thinking. When you lose a dimension, you lose, you've given up all claims to reality. Well, it's just a simple statement about physical reality, about what it is. I mean, it has to have dimensions, or it's just uh, an idea. But one of the things that physics tells us is that things that we think of as reality that, that are not really what, we, what they seem. Like the fact that you and I are made of particles that have mass is just an accident of our circumstances. At a fundamental level, they're massless. It just happens we live in a world that happens, has this Higgs sea around us and it causes things to behave in a way that's very different than they are. So massive particles and massless particles are really the same. It's just an accident of our circumstances. So physics causes us to realize that at a, oh, and quantum mechanics, that at a fundamental level, reality is not what we experience. Okay. So it could be, and I'm willing to accept the possibility, that while dimensions are vitally important to us and real, that it, they could be an illusion of our circumstances. Well, that opens up a larger view of things. I mean, our entire... Our entire... entire uh, assessment of reality is just what we see in here. Yeah. And and dimensions are incredibly important to it. I I have to say for me, that's the biggest failure of string theory, really, is not the fact that it requires extra dimensions. But there's no explanation intrinsically of why the world that we experience is three dimensional. It's spatial, spatially four dimension if you include time. There's yes. no there's nothing in the theory that points to why we should the three dimensions we experience should be large, and you can walk through them, and have a conversation in them. And, and there's nothing in the theory that points that out. It seems to be a complete accident. Well, I don't think it's a complete accident. I mean, it, it says that uh, there are only three ways you can shoot an arrow without crossing it. Yeah, but if the, but if there, but if we lived in a five dimensional world, there'd be a lot of other ways to to shoot an arrow. And but so. That's, it was that statement, yeah. by the way, that Feynman said was the big flaw of string theory. It, 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 it doesn't explain anything. It's, it makes apologies. Because okay. you have to say st- string theory is based on the assumption that, yeah, there are a lot of extra dimensions and they're very small. And the world we see is large. The three dimensions we see are large. But why are those extra dimensions small? Theory doesn't tell you. I don't know. They're not really dimensions in the classical sense. Well, it could be. But, but there's something that distinguishes very clearly distinguishes an 11-dimensional world from, from a world in which there are th- three dimensions that we can experience. Yeah, but I just don't think that the, the, dimensions, the dimensions that are thrown in there to make it have these dimensions are like the three dimensions we're familiar Three dimensions we're familiar with are, are very simple things. It's, it's, again, it's where you can shoot an arrow without uh, crossing one path over another. 
Well, we have an ex- we happen to live in the world in which we live. Most of us do, not all yes. of us. But um, there's a great description in here you talk about here. And again, I, I can't help but read the words here, although I know they know your words, but they raise the issues that I want to talk about. Because we're never going to get in this ridiculous notion that somehow what you write down has anything to do with what you happen to believe, because that's, an, that's something that people don't understand. And when they ever talk about it, it's best to close your ears. But... Um, This character says, you will never know what the world is made of. The only thing that's certain is that it's not made of the world. As you close upon some mathematical description of reality, you can't help but lose what is being described. Every inquiry displaces what is addressed. And I found that really interesting because, again, it 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 sort of says, if I read it correctly, and I can move away from the sun now, what we talked about before, that there's a mathematical description of the world and there's the world and and they're not the same thing. No. Is that what you're trying to get at there? Well, no, it's 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 a very plain s- simple statement. I mean, well, it, a lot it, of people would say, "Hmm, I don't know, it's like the only thing that's certain is the world is not made of the world." Uh, I, I mean, yeah. it's true that the What's clear, we now understand from quantum mechanics, is that the world is made of objects that are not the objects we experience. Okay. So at a fundamental level, the world is not what, what we see. And I guess I kind of thought maybe that's what you were talking about there. Well, that, that and other things, yeah. What other things? Ah, uh, <laughs> you, you this. <laughs> you were, yeah, it was a trap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, I don't know, it's a simple statement, but if you think about it, it's... It's, it's hiding. It's hiding more than it reveals. Yeah, the, I the, the, the universe is hiding. Much and part of the job of science and the joy for me is to discover what's hidden. It's yeah. A, yeah. Is it, does it amaze you that? I mean, sometimes I sit back and it it is amazing that here, on this remote planet in the middle of nowhere, these these hominids. That, isn't it amazing that we what we that we, that how much of the hidden universe, even in the, in your lifetime and my lifetime, it's almost unfathomable how much of the hidden universe we can now know about, isn't it? Well, that's what Einstein said. He said it's what's really what's really baffling is the, is that the world is understandable. Yeah, that itself is is remarkable that that we can understand it at all. But you know, I I do astrophysics and cosmology, but. I, I look up at the night sky, and I know I work in this field where I know how many galaxies there are and, 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 and developments of dark matter. But isn't it amazing with these little telescopes? We've been able to look, and we know not only the shape of our galaxy, but the, but the galaxy, you know, millions of light years away, and, or in some cases billions. We know the large scale, the makeup of the universe. It still it boggles my mind that we... And that's in less than 100 years, right? 100 yeah, years ago, yeah. we knew of one galaxy. Yeah. I want to come back as, as we get near the end here to this question about that we alluded to with science versus literature. You said at the very beginning, how can you not be fascinated with science? As if when I asked that question, like it was the most ridiculous question in the world. <laughs> and okay. I, and and, I, and, it, and I, I, I feel that way too, because I say that, when, you know, how can you not be fascinated with science? Did you ever read Jacob Bernowski? I used to love Jacob Bernowski. Yeah, I've read it. And, 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 and he, was, he really influenced me a lot. But he made some statement about you know, it's not a game. You can't play this game. The world, science infiltrates the world through and through in every way. And, and it's not a game, and you just have to accept that, that, that it's, it's real and whole. 
And that's incredibly important. But, but the fact that we have to say that means we live in a world where most people don't have that appreciation at all. We're doing something wrong. Well, there's, uh, there's, really nothing, there's really nothing that has improved our lives in the last 100 years that's not based in science. In more than 100 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of everything that makes our lives the way it is, is science. Yeah. And that's true even, you know, it, it, that's in a cultural sense true, I think, as well. It impacts on the, okay. on the, on the uh, it impacts on every aspect of our culture as well as just the technology of science. But why, why don't more people think like you? <laughs> I mean, the question is why we live in a society where science is something for column B, and, and many people say it's just something I can't understand, it's not interesting, yet they don't, you know, they may not like Picasso, but they don't say, I'm not an artist and therefore I won't be interested in it, I'm not, or I'm not a guitar player and therefore I won't be interested in listening to Eric Clapton or whoever is your favorite guitar player. Yet in science, some of them say, well, I'm not a scientist and therefore I, I don't have to be interested in it. And, and what can we do to change that? I don't know. I, I don't think there's much you can do to change it. Most people are just not interested in anything. Well, I, I'm leading to a trap here. So you know. <laughs> okay. The trap is you've written a book in which science plays a, a key role, but you write uh, the details of the standard model in, in here and other aspects of mathematics. And what I love about it is you write it as if the reader should be able to appreciate this as if you were talking about Shakespeare or Milton or the Holocaust or anything else. Okay. I'm wondering if that's the way to do it, is to have the writers that we most appreciate and the musicians we most appreciate be willing to talk about science as if it's, of course I can talk about the standard model. Why wouldn't I be able to? So I'm wondering if, even though you say you don't know how to do it, I'm wondering if... In, if in writing this book, in some ways, you're not making, you're not contributing to the to the effort to somehow convince people that they should be able to at least converse about this with some level of of authority. He, I suppose, some part of you wants people to have a better understanding of science and a better to feel a little bit warmer towards science than they probably do. So, so there was some malice for that. There some, was some intent. To include that in this. Well, not, it's not the first intent. It's not the first intent. Yeah. The first intent is to write a good story, I assume. Yeah, I think so. That's what it should be. I agree. But, yeah. but it's nice to see it. It's the same thing as I talked about with the, 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 the radio program you did with Werner. If, if, if people who are literary or film icons, or whatever you want to call the word, talk about science as if it's, of course it's something I'd be interested in, then it yeah. gives an example of, to others that, hey... You know, it's not so strange to be fascinated by this stuff. Yeah, yeah. We talked about at lunch. Your son, like my daughter, is very musical. I love music, but I my but I can't do it. I try as hard as I might, and to me, that I try and wonder what it's like to someone who can't do mathematics. It must feel the same. But the difference is, it doesn't stop me from loving listening to it. Yeah. So. What's that difference? I guess you can't just listen to mathematics so you can, you can listen to music. Or you can go in an art gallery and just look and enjoy the art without knowing Contributing. About it. Whereas yeah. with, with math, 
it, there's a somewhat higher barrier. In order to really appreciate it, there's some level you have to get to. Mathematics is, uh, some, people just, some people just don't understand it and they will never understand it. Yeah, and, and I understand that you know, people have a barrier, and, but as I say that, but I think the thing that's important is that it doesn't mean you can't talk about it and have some perspective of what it's about and understand the questions you've always had, like you know, why are we here or how did we get here or are we alone in the universe and the kind of questions that everyone has about, about yeah. nature. Questions that have no answers. Yeah, which they don't, the problem is people don't realize those questions that fascinate them, as I said earlier, are really science. They think it's something else. They think it's theology. And they don't realize that the questions that they're all asking are science questions. Yeah. And somehow in our schools, we don't do a good job of explaining to kids that the questions that interest them are actually scientific ones. Yeah, and all kids are interested in the same questions. Why are we here? What's going on? Yeah. By the way, I didn't go, let's go back to the beginning. Did, you have good, did your teachers encourage your interest in science, or was school useful to you in that regard or not? No, I didn't get much out of school. Yeah, you're not the first person that's told me that. In fact, yeah. a lot of people said they got interested in what they got interested in in spite of, in spite of their teachers. Largely true, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and so you didn't have a teacher that encouraged you to in science? Uh, not until science. I got in college. Into college, okay, and that was the big difference. But did they encourage your interest in science or in writing or what? I, I don't know. It encouraged my interest in reading books. On oh, reading books. Until then, yeah. you didn't read books much. Uh, no, I would. That's. They saw somebody who liked to read books is why they were attracted. Okay, okay. So that's. So you always did like to read books. I read books when I was a kid, and then uh, as I got older, I wanted to be one of the guys. And the guys didn't read books, so I didn't read books for a few years, and then I got back into books again. The guys took apart cars and 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 put them back together again. Is that yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Well, it was a good it was a it was a good excursion. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I wish I I never had that, so I never got to do the car part. Well, the last the last thing I want to ask is a quote in the same it's in the same paragraph as that last quote. And you say, but above all, and lastly, the world does not know that you are here. Yeah. And that, I, that's a one, of course, again, another wonderful phrase, but it's also a true phrase. And it is, but most people don't feel that way. They feel that somehow or other their, their existence on the planet is, uh, somebody has to know I'm here besides me. Yeah, the, the world, we talked about, you know, I talked to you about my experience of touching that rock in Greenland, how I've been waiting for 8, 1, 8 billion yeah. years for me to touch it. Yeah. But it really wasn't, of course. But the, 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 the realization the world does not know you're here, for some people, is incredibly terrifying. And for some people, it's incredibly depressing. And for others, I suspect, like both me and you, it's exhilarating. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, the fa- because it means that you know, there's no plan, and you have this moment to experience the world, and you should take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that the world is not here, does not know you're here, it, I, I don't want to really go too far into this, but suggest that there's no divine plan, and you, you'll buy that, there's no divine plan for your being here. Uh, no, I'm not a big believer in divine plans. Okay. Well, look, I think, I think the, the willingness to accept that the world does not know we're here and it doesn't revolve around us and that if we're lucky, we get to 
experience the world and learn about it by looking outward is the key to science and the key to good literature because literature like yours opens another kind of world for us to experience. I can experience the world through your imagination and so there's this real tie between the two. So the world may not care or know that you're here but I do and (laughs) my life has been enriched by knowing you personally and being able to read you and and I'm the luckiest person in the world to not just be able to read you, you, you but to talk to you about it and not more than that for you to agree to talk to me about it and trust me. So I, I want to thank you so much for spending oh, well, time with you're me. welcome. Thank you. It's been a joy as always and a privilege. And I, 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 I'm so lucky that others will get to hear it too. Thanks again, Omet. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.